welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by Jason Cherry on January 15th, Lord's Day Service. This is the first of several weeks on gender. We're going to be looking at uh, gender, and that includes in future weeks, weeks, we're going to be looking at modern gender theory, secular gender theory, just looking at what it is, where it came from historically, how did it come to be that we think of gender and biological sex as distinct things. Uh, we're going to be looking at, looking at all of that and, and offering a cultural, or excuse me, a Christian response to to some of those, those modern theories. Uh, today, though, we're going to start by looking at what the book of Genesis has to teach us about gender. And so today we're really laying a few just basic theological foundations. So let's, uh, let's begin by, by a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the knowledge and grace that lifts and sanctifies our souls. We ask that through the teaching time this morning that you would lift us towards heaven. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has this encounter with the Pharisees. It's in Mark chapter 10, and the Pharisees are questioning Jesus about whether or not divorce is permissible. And in Jesus' answer, he refers them back to Genesis, and he says this in Mark chapter 10, verse 6, "...from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female." And that suggests that our understanding, therefore, of male and female must start in the book of Genesis. That's where Jesus' mind went when he considered these things, and so that's where our mind should go when we consider these things. And so if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and make your way to the book of Genesis. We're going to look at several things, mainly in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And so if we're going to understand what God has to say about gender then we need to go to the book of Genesis. And we're going to break this down in, in two ways, and this is how Abigail Favale does it in her book, Genesis of Gender, and I found it a really helpful paradigm to think about it. So we're going to look at what we learn about gender before the fall, and then we're going to see what we learn about gender after the fall. And of course, by the fall, I'm referring to man's fall into sin. So our first question then is, what does Genesis teach us about gender before the fall. Now, as we start looking here at Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, we're looking at the book of beginnings. And in the ancient world, origin stories are about identity and purpose. And it's important to remind ourselves of that because when a modern person, when a post-enlightenment person goes to Genesis, they go to it with a lot of scientific questions. But that's not the primary purpose of ancient origin stories. Ancient origin stories establish identity and purpose. And so that means that we can't understand our identity and purpose without understanding our origins. And so Genesis is not a science textbook. It's ancient literature, and it's presenting an ancient cosmology. And so that means it's not about physics only. It's also about metaphysics. And so Genesis is not only about physics. It's not only about the physical world. It's also about metaphysics. It's about the real thing, the true thing, that stands behind the physical world. 
And so, yes, there is a physical creation. There is a physical world, and Genesis reveals that to us. And so, in Genesis, we learn about the physical thing. But even more so, we learn about the metaphysical thing. We learn about the real thing that explains the physical thing. The real thing, the true things, with, with a capital T, that stands behind the physical thing. And so to say that Genesis speaks on that metaphysical level just means simply that the physical reality that God makes is part of and revealing the meaning and purpose of God's world. And so the metaphysical works with the physical to give us meaning and purpose. And when it comes to individual persons, as man is made in Genesis chapter 1, that means that there is place and vocation and purpose and roles that come through, that are revealed through the physical creation, even the physical part of man. And so when we look at, at what we learn about uh, learn, learn about gender in this pre-fallen world, there's really nine things that I want to draw your attention to here. So there's nine things that we learn about gender from the pre-fallen world. Now, the first three have to do with God himself because God's the one who makes persons with distinct genders. And so we start here with three things in particular that we learn about God from Genesis. The first thing we learn about God is that God is being itself. God is being itself. And I would capitalize being there. Now, I know that's philosophical language, and so th that might turn you into blue screen immediately. Uh, so, but it's not complicated, trust me, so just follow me here. God is being itself. Okay, so when we see in Genesis 1, uh, the, the, the early description of the world is that the world begins formless and void. So that means there's no other deities here, there's no violence here, but there is a void that God comes to fill. There is nothing that God replaces with something. And this God that we encounter in Genesis 1 has no parents. He himself has no origin story. Genesis isn't about the origin of God. God's just there. He's pre-existing the origin of the physical world. So God has no parents. God has no origin story because he doesn't come into being. And that's what I mean by God is being itself. He's not coming into being. He's the only thing in the world that doesn't come into being. He is being itself. And so God himself is not a being. God is being. Another way to say this, a more simpler way to say this for people who have read the Bible, is to simply say that God is the great I am. God is always existing, infinitely existing. God is predating time, and then once he creates space and time, he transcends it. All existence depends on God. That's what it means to say that God is being itself. So it's not as complicated as it might sound. All finite existence depends on God's infinite existence. And <clears throat> there's more than just one ancient story of origins. Genesis is, of course, one of them. But the Babylonians had their own creation story. And in contrast to Genesis stands Marduk. Marduk is the Babylonian creator god. And his creation story is found in the ancient book Enuma Elish. And Marduk, in that story, is the product of two divine beings who are killed by the time Marduk creates the cosmos. 
So Marduk is mere being who has something to prove. He's not being itself. He comes into being, and then he has something to prove, and that's why the world exists in the ancient Babylonian creation story. And in contrast to Marduk, we have the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible has nothing to prove. He has no one to defeat. He has nothing to conquer. He's being itself. And so the oneness and sovereignty of God is being itself. It's the ground of all existence. And so the first thing we learn in this pre-fallen state is that God is being itself. The second thing we learn is that God is about creation rather than destruction. God is about creation rather than destruction. And you might think that's a strange thing to point out when you read Genesis, but in the Enuma Elish, creation is secondary to destruction. In that creation story, creation is like an epilogue. It's buried at the end. But in Genesis, creation is God's central activity. And so there is no need to explain God's existence or his rise to power because there is no rival. There is no violence. There is no contention. There is nothing he has to compete with in his origin story. And so Genesis begins with God creating the heavens and the earth. It begins with creation. There's nothing to destroy. And so it begins with creating the heavens and the earth. And creation is intentional. It's orderly, which is to say it's not by accident. It doesn't happen randomly. And in contrast to the Enuma Elish, it doesn't happen by destruction. In the Enuma Elish, the creation of the world happens by destruction. But in the Bible, creation happens through language, and God speaks the world into being. And so as we look at this pre-fallen state, we learn first that God is being itself, and that second, God is about creation rather than destruction. And the third thing we learn specifically about God is that God creates the cosmos. God creates the cosmos. And of course, this is the most obvious thing we see in Genesis 1. When you look at Genesis 1, you really have a God's eye view of creation. The tension isn't between God and some other deity. The tension in Genesis 1 is between absence and presence. The tension in Genesis 1 is between nothing and something. There is no conflict and violence between God and another deity. Not, I mean, there's conflict later, of course, but not in Genesis 1. From day 1, then day 2, and so on, you see creation unfolding, and creation unfolds as an integral, interconnected whole. God is making the cosmos. And there's this rhythm to Genesis. There's this poetry to Genesis. And each day of creation is pronounced by God as good. And so God is about the unfolding, or excuse me, Genesis is about the unfolding of the cosmos in this wave of creation, a wave of productive good. And it reaches its apex on day six with the creation of human beings. And human beings, we are told, it's good. In fact, we're told it's very good. And so these human beings are made good. As you get into Genesis 2, of course, Eve is made. So we've got multiple human beings here. And these human beings are made good, which is to say they're, they're not guilty. 
They are good and they bear the image of God, their creator. And in this state before the fall, God creates work for them to do. And so he creates them with the dignity of work. They're not made to be slaves. It's not work like that. They're tasked with tending the earth and filling it with life. And so this is a dignity that is rooted in their role as image bearers to cultivate the earth. All right, so we see these three foundational things here in the pre-fallen Genesis. We see that God is being itself. We see that God is about creation rather than destruction. And then we see third, that God creates the cosmos. And that leads us to our fourth thing that we need to see about uh, see in Genesis in this pre-fallen state. And that is that God makes sexual differences. So the God who is being itself, the God who is about creation rather than destruction, and the God who creates the whole cosmos, this God makes sexual differences. And so we read in chapter 1, verse 27, that God makes them male and female. Now, this is all the more striking when you compare it to the Enuma Elish. The Enuma Elish, remember the Babylonian creation story, it has nothing to say about women specifically. The central narrative conflict in the Enuma Elish is a war between Marduk, who is the, the masculine god, and his, and his foremother, Tiamat. And so Marduk has to violently subdue Tiamat before creation can even take place. And so when you look at, uh, in the ancient Babylonian creation story, male and female, it's about male conquering female. It's about male destroying female, and then once that destruction happens, then the creation can happen. Well, in Genesis, it's a very different story. In Genesis, there is no conflict or war between male and female. There is a common dignity that inhabits this divinely created order. There's a harmonious cosmos, and that includes the difference between male and female. So the order there is good. And so Genesis presents an orderly and dignified garden, and within that orderly and dignified garden are sexual differences between male and female, which means that the difference between a man and a woman is not an extraneous feature of the cosmos. It's not a faulty feature of the cosmos. It's an essential part of what God has said is good. And so when we look at the difference between male and female, we can conclude nothing other than this is good. This is not a problem. This difference is good. Of course, in the early chapters of Genesis, God is depicted as walking and talking with Adam and Eve in the beautiful garden. And so you also see that there is a transcendence and an imminence to God. In Genesis chapter 1, God is transcendent, which means he's large over. He stands above the creation as he creates the world. But then in Genesis 2, God is imminent. He's there. He's present. And the transcendent God of Genesis 1 is now a deeply personal God who desires to commune with his image bearers, both male and female. And so we see here that God makes sexual differences. The fifth thing we see in the pre-fallen state is that God makes humans body and soul. God makes humans body and soul. In particular, we need to look here at chapter 2, verse 7. So God makes Adam from the hummus of the soil, 
we read in verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. So he's with spiritual life in the second part of verse 7. I don't know if you, about you, if you've ever read chapter 2, verse 7, and you see how God makes man, you say, okay, God makes man from the dust. That's odd. We're from the dust. What does that mean? I mean, what is God saying? Are human beings no better than dust? Why does he make man in this fashion? Why is it emphasized in verse 2 that we are from the dust? Well, the idea here is that you are a physical creature. That's the meaning of this. You are made from the dust. Human beings are physical creatures. Our bodies, our physical bodies are part of who we are. Our physical bodies are integral to who we are. A human being has a physical presence. But it doesn't have merely a physical presence. You're not merely matter. Because God's breath in the second part of verse 7, God's spirit enlivens each of us with an immaterial soul. So you look at this, you look at verse 7 in particular, and you ask, what is a human being? One of the most fundamental questions of the world. What is a human being? Well, we see here a human being is body and soul. A human being is made out of the dust and then given life by God's breath. So what is a human being? A human being is earth and breath. A human being is matter and spirit. We are physical and spiritual. That's a human being. It's not one or the other. It's both. It's this duality, and that duality is related. And the word for this that's often used is psychosomatic. A human being is a psychosomatic being. Somatic from the, from the Greek word soma. Soma means body. We're psychosomatic beings. We're, we're physical and spiritual. We're body and spirit. But the limitations of science cannot explain this. I mean, yes, science can explain the body. We can have x-rays, and we can have MRI machines, and we can do surgery on the physical body, and we can say a lot about the physical body. But the limitations of science cannot explain the mind. Science cannot explain the spiritual aspect of human existence. The limitations of science cannot explain the mind. You can't do surgery and pull out the mind and then look around and see. The limitations of science extend to the will. Science cannot explain the will. You cannot empirically examine the will. You can't do a surgery and then pull out the human will and examine it and then reproduce it in a textbook in a 3D diagram. The limitations of science cannot explain personality. You cannot take personality out of a person mid-surgery and then examine it. The limitations of science cannot explain the consciousness of human beings. You can't pull that out and examine it. You can't hold consciousness in your hands. And so we are body and spirit. But the creative breath of God cannot be tamed by scientific observation. And so what is a human being? A human being is body and spirit. It's a psychosomatic union that we read about in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. But we have to admit on some level this is a mystery. We can explain how reflexes work, and we can explain how the brain works, but can we explain how the mind works? Can we scientifically, empirically explain how the mind works, or how the will works, or how personality works, or how consciousness works? 
No. And so the creative breath of God cannot be tamed by scientific observations. And so a human being in some very real way is a mystery. Now, don't let the mysterious elements make you forget that it's a unity, though. There's a physical element that we can see, and that physical element does reveal something of the more mysterious element, of the spiritual element, that element that we can't examine through empirical science. The body and the soul together make the person, and it's a unity. So the body speaks some truth about the soul. And so we're not simply bodies. The human person is stamped by the image of God and given spiritual life. But neither are we purely spiritual beings who transcend our physical conditions. Our souls animate our bodies. Our souls need our bodies. This is called life. And it's formed in accord with the divinely ordained difference between men and women. And so we see that God makes sexual differences, but also God makes humans as body and soul. The sixth thing we see here in this pre-fallen state in Genesis is that God makes man a companion. God makes man a companion. In about six months or so, I taught a marriage Sunday school class with this very point. Uh, as marriage is companionship, and we kind of explored the implications of this as it relates in particular to a healthy marriage. We're going to look at this same point, though, now with a different emphasis. Okay? So God makes man a companion. And when you look at the creation ac account, there's, there's, there's a poetic rhythm to Genesis. There's a poetic rhythm throughout the creation account. But that rhythm is disrupted in chapter 2, verse 18. So what we see in Genesis 1, there's this refrain, and it was good. We're told this after each day. But then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says the opposite words for the first time. In chapter 2, verse 18, it says now, it is not good. So look at it, verse 18. What is not good? Well, it says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So it is not good that man is a solitary being. It is not good that man is one of a kind. That is not good. The human, the man, needs a companion. He needs a counterpart. And so the Lord brings to Adam all the animals he made. Adam names them. And then it says at the end of verse 20, that among all the animals presented to Adam, none was a fit helper for him. That is, none was a fit companion for him. So God takes a new approach. Rather than making animals out of the ground and presenting them to Adam, God now decides to put Adam to sleep in verse 21. And from one of Adam's ribs, he forms the first woman and presents the woman to Adam in verse 22. And then notice Adam's response. What is Adam's response in verse 23? Adam's response is he says, at last. That's what it says. At last, Adam says. In other words, Adam responds with wonder upon seeing the woman for the first time. At last. That's an expression of delight and relief. 
So, so look at it all here, verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So notice that phrase. She is bone of Adam's bone and then flesh of his flesh. And that's what Adam says. That's what he observes about her. At last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So Adam recognizes that she is like him in a way that the other creatures are not. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She is like me in a way that the animals are not. And she shall be called woman. And by calling her woman, Adam there is characterizing her nature. And her nature indicates the sort of life lived, the sort of roles fulfilled and the function. And Adam recognizes that she is not exactly like him, so she can't be called man. Woman is like him and not like him at the same time. And their difference is complementary, but it is asymmetrical. They are not mirror images. When man looks at woman, it's not exactly like him, but it's not that they're polar opposites either. So she resembles him in shared humanity, bone of my bone. But she differs in the feminine form of her humanity. And so there's a sense of sameness and a sense of difference between man and woman. The sense of sameness is that they are both human beings. And the sense of difference is that he is a man and she is a woman. And this sameness and difference, notice, is part of the creation prior to the fall. Which means it is necessary to maintain that sameness difference reality even today. And secular gender theory is confused on this point. It's not unified either. Uh, there's a lot of different strains, as we'll see in coming weeks. I'm not going to get into all this today. But, but some advocate for an extreme unity of the sexes, basically where, where men and women are interchangeable. Uh, but others advocate for an extreme polarity between men and women, where you know, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. And, and you know, that kind of misses the mark in a different way. So sexual difference is a particular kind of difference because it is a difference that is arranged purpose, purposely to correspond to the difference of the other. One body is designed to fit the other body. One body is de designed to fit another kind of body. And so the male biology signals a certain kind of role, a certain kind of capacity, and a certain kind of gift that has a communion with the role and the capacity and the gift of the female biology. And the word complementary is perfectly okay there to define what that relationship is. And the differences between man and woman create fruitful and vibrant relationships. And those fruitful and vibrant relationships create fruitful and vibrant communities, which then create fruitful and vibrant societies. You trace that back then. What, how do you have a fruitful society? Well, you have a fruitful community. How do you have a fruitful community? Well, you have a fruitful marriage between man and woman. And these sexual differences between man and woman are the very thing necessary to bring another human being into existence, 
to create that fruitfulness, to create communities, to create societies. And so what we see here is that problem is announced in verse 18. It is not good for man to be alone. And God's solution is sexual differentiation. In other words, God makes man a companion. And this is good. All right, let's move now to the seventh thing we learn in this pre-fallen state. And that is that God privileges the male-female relationship. God privileges the male-female relationship. The sexual difference between man and woman, it's not a mishap. It's orderly. It's purposeful. And it's a cause for celebration and wonder for Adam, especially in verse 23. And the difference between them is good. Their bodies made male and female are good. They're part of the created order, which is good. And in Genesis, especially chapter 2, the male-female relationship is privileged. When God made a companion for Adam, he didn't give him another man. He made a female rather than another male. And so the male-female relationship is privileged. That is what solves the problem of verse 18. It's not good that man should be alone. What's the solution? A woman, not another man. And so the bodily differences between the man and the woman are good. And the reason I'm emphasizing this is because, again, when you contrast what Genesis is doing with some of the more ancient cosmology, some of the ancient creation stories, well, in Plato's Timaeus, Women are only mentioned at the very end. He gives this extensive tour of the cosmos, and there is no women there. The woman is mentioned there at the very end. In ancient literature, in ancient origin stories, the male-male relationship is privileged. And in Plato's Timaeus, there is no woman even in the first generation of mankind. And according to the Timaeus, men who live cowardly and unjust lives are either reborn as an animal or a woman as punishment. And so sexual difference is not a purposeful feature of ancient origin stories, in particular in Plato's cosmos. Sexual differences in Plato's cosmos are a defect. It's a bug. The male figure is closer to the divine image than the female figure is in Plato's Timaeus. And so in ancient literature, especially Plato's Timaeus, you see this privileged bond between men. But this is a theme. You see this in other ancient friendships. Consider Gilgamesh and Enkidu. Consider Achilles and Patroclus. Consider Aristotle's writings. And Aristotle's writings on friendship. It's the man and the man relationship that's privileged. But not so in God's world. What we see is that before the fall, God privileges the male-female relationship. And so it's not just that God makes man a companion, but it's also that he privileges that relationship between man and woman. The eighth thing to consider in this pre-fallen state is that God makes the body in order to reveal the person. God makes the body in order to reveal the person. God makes this physical person and then he breathes life into it. Remember chapter 2, verse 7. And the body here reveals the person. The physical body is the visible reality that manifests the soul. In other words, personhood 
is revealed through embodiment. Personhood can't be revealed without the body. And so personhood is revealed through the body, which means the body speaks some truth about the person. The body, the physical part, speaks some truth about the spiritual part, especially as it relates to office and calling and purpose and vocation and roles. And to say this differently is to just say simply that the soul is engendered. Remember what we observed earlier. A person, a human being, is body and soul. And that, it's a psychosomatic union. It's a unity between the physical and the spiritual such that what's seen visibly and physically is revealing something about the spiritual part of the person. And so the soul is gendered. And personhood the physical component of that is revealed to others through the body. And so when Adam recognizes the woman, her body speaks some truth of her existence and of their relationship and of her role and of her office. And Adam is struck with joy and wonder at the revelation of the person with who he can at last have true companionship. And so the body there reveals the soul. The body reveals the spiritual reality. The body makes visible what is invisible. The body transfers into visible reality the spiritual mystery. And so God makes the body in order to reveal the person. And this is one of the dangers we have in the way we talk about heaven, as if that's permanent. No, the new heavens and the new earth is what we're aiming for here. And what of our bodies then? They're resurrected and reunited with our soul. The heavenly state, the disembodied state in heaven may be a temporary thing, and it may be glorious for what it is, but that's not the end, and that's not the end goal. The end goal is going to see that physical body, perfected and glorified, united with the soul. And the body is revealing the person. And that will be true in the future as well. The ninth thing to observe here in this pre-fallen state is that God establishes a relationship between language and reality. God establishes a relationship between language and reality. This is a point we're going to come back to quite a bit in the coming weeks. And I want you to go ahead and see this now while we're in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates the cosmos ex nihilo, out of nothing. In Genesis chapter 2, man uses language to name and to describe what God creates. And so the pattern is this. Genesis chapter 1, divine speech makes reality. Genesis chapter 2, human speech identifies reality. That is the point of human speech. Human speech identifies what God made. So God uses language to create. Man uses language to describe what God created. For example, Genesis chapter 2, the parade of animals, the subject of many children's Sunday school classes. Man names the animals. But when man names the animals, he's not imposing meaning upon those animals. He is recognizing the meaning that he can observe through their physical existence, and then he names them. So, Genesis chapter 2, verse 19, God creates the animals, and he presents them to man. 
Adam then discerns each animal's distinct nature and bestows a name that proclaims that nature. And so, for example, when God brought out the ostrich, I mean, surely he was trying to get a laugh out of Adam. I don't see any other point. Surely when God trots out the ostrich and says, name this one, he's trying to get a rise out of Adam, isn't he? How can you look at an, an, an ostrich and not laugh? So Adam looks at the ostrich, he doubles over in laughter, and then he says, that's an ostrich. The name represents the meaning of the animal. And this dynamic continues into chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, when God makes the helper and man names her woman. Adam recognizes that she shares his nature, but in a modality that is distinct from his own. So Adam thinks, okay, here's this woman he's made, for, or here's this, here's this companion that God has made for me. What word communicates that this creature is simultaneously like and unlike me? What word will describe that reality that God has made? And he chooses a word, and the word he chooses has a twofold reality. The word is woman. The Hebrew word is isha. The word isha includes the word ish, which is the word for man. And so the name that Adam gives to the woman, it doesn't impose meaning upon her. It recognizes the meaning in her. The name woman reveals that she shares his nature, but in a different mode. And so according to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, what is the relationship between language and reality? Well, language is only true and meaningful when it corresponds to reality. This is called the correspondence view of language. Now, in gender theory, the constructivist view of language thinks that reality is merely linguistic, Reality is a social construction that projects personalized meaning onto the thing. I know that's a bunch of gobbledygook when you hear all this spoken out loud. What that means simply is that in the gender view of language, I decide what this thing means, and I will construct language to impose my meaning on the thing. But that's not what we see in Genesis. In Genesis, meaning intrinsically exists in what God creates. And man's job is to make words that reveal the truth about God, God's word, and God's world. And that is how we also ought to use language. All right, so we see here nine things that we learn about gender in this pre-fallen state. The first three have to do with God himself, and then the next uh, four through nine have to do with what we learn about gender. But as we know, in Genesis chapter 3, the fall comes. So now let's ask the question, what does Genesis teach about gender in the post-fallen state? Let's consider three things. First, notice that after the fall, Adam and Eve confuse personhood. They confuse personhood. So the first consequence, we're now in Genesis 3, the first consequence of eating the forbidden fruit is sudden awareness that they're naked. We see this in chapter 3, verse 7. So what do they do? They, they, they realize they're naked, and so they make clothes to hide themselves in verse 7. And then they, they hide from God in verse 8. 
Now, all this harkens back to chapter 2, verse 25, when Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. But now something's gone wrong. Their naked bodies that were once a source of wonder and joy now elicit discomfort. Now it brings shame. And so conflict has entered the garden. And conflict has disrupted the original harmony that exists between man and woman. Now they want to hide their sexually differentiated bodies. In other words, now they're ashamed of the body as a sign of the person. Remember earlier, the body is a sign of the person. The body is revealing something about personhood, about the soul. But now they're ashamed of the body and what it might reveal about their person. And so they lose sight of the truth that to see a body is to see a person. And so they hide the body. And so rather than participating in the visibility of the world, they hide their differentiated bodies. They're obscuring the bodily differences and thus obscuring the fact that the body does in fact reveal something about the person. And what else is lost? Well, they have also lost the sense of the image of God in themselves. Notice back in verse 5, Satan says when he's tempting Eve, you will be like God. And those words and a few others that he gives, those words lead her away from the recognition that she already bears a likeness to God. She is a living, breathing image of God in the visible world. But he's trying to get rid of that. No, you will be like God if you do this. You're not like God now. Well, that's a lie. She's in the image of God right now. And so the principle we see is this. When you get rid of God, you get rid of the person. Because the person, including the physical part, combined with the spiritual part, is the image of God. And so the words of the serpent cause doubt about the goodness of God's gift. The words of the serpent cause doubt about the goodness of God's creation and causes doubt about the goodness that their bodies, as male and female, are good. And so what we see then in this part of Genesis in particular is that this is sin, the perpetual doubt about God's gift of creation, and that includes God's gift of bodies. And so the sinful person tries to hide or erase the gift of their body. How is that done in modern gender theory? Again, through language. And we're going to explore that more in future weeks. So the, the, the first thing after the fall is they confuse personhood. The second thing we see after the fall is that they confuse unity. They confuse unity. Remember unity, how we used that word earlier. There's a union between man's physical and spiritual existence, the psychosomatic unity. So the physical part of man and the spiritual part of man create a union. And after the fall, they confuse that unity. Sin fractures the original spiritual somatic union. Now the body resists the spirit. Now the body is something that needs to be tamed and hidden. And so the outer rupture leads to an inner rupture that separates the outer from the inner and makes it difficult to identify oneself by the body. And the rupture means that people have difficulty identifying oneself with their own body. In other words, they become depersonalized. Okay, so, so in other words, when you separate the unity 
You're depersonalizing someone because a person is necessarily body and soul. So what happens, though, if one of those is now erased from our thought? Well, then you have depersonalized the person. You've dehumanized the person, to use modern jargon. And so, once we depersonalize someone, they become objects to us. So if you separate a, man, or a person's physical existence from their spiritual existence then you are objectifying the person. And how this often works for modern people is we forget the fact that people are spirits. And so we look only at their bodies. We objectify them. And this usually goes by the name of lust. Lust starts when we erase human identity. Human identity, a human person is physical and spiritual. But when we remove one of those, then that person is just matter. That person is just there. It's an object for me to consume. The body is objectified when it's divorced from the inner person. And that's so often what's happening in lust. We're looking at the matter. We're looking at the physical. But we're not accounting for the whole. Because if you accounted for the whole, you would know that there's so much more than just an object. And so the second thing we see in the post-fallen state is that they confuse that psychosomatic union. And then the third thing they confuse, and we're going to close with this, the third thing they confuse is language. After the fall, they confuse language. It's tying back to what we observed a moment ago about the purpose of language, of human language in Genesis. So when God confronts Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 verses 8 through 13 after they've sinned, their reaction is to equivocate their, their reaction is to blame others. Their reaction is to mislead. Uh, they're twisting the truth. They're behaving just like the serpent. But what's going on there? Well, their language is perverted. Before, as we saw earlier, Adam used language to describe the reality that God made. Earlier, Adam used language to match the reality that God made. But now Adam and Eve use words to confuse the reality that God made, to manipulate reality. Notice, for example, in in verse 12, chapter 3, verse 12, the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Notice how he doubles the verb gave. So so our attention's being drawn to the notion of a gift. Well, earlier, remember, Eve, the woman, is presented to Adam as a gift, the companion, something that causes wonder and amazement for Adam. But now the gift is twisted. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. So Adam's words now reject God's gift of the woman. What he was just a few verses earlier celebrating, now he's twisted it and now he's blaming her. He's turned the gift upside down. And so, what do we learn after the fall? Well, we see that they confuse personhood, we see that they confuse unity, and third, we see that they confuse language. And so, as we wrap this up for today, we see two genders before the fall and after the fall. Before the fall, sexual differences are orderly and natural. They are experienced as a gift and a source of fruitfulness and companionship. There is a balance between sameness and difference that cooperates to fulfill the mission God gave them to fill the earth and to subdue it. 
After the fall, there's a fracture. Not only is the earth fractured, but personhood is fractured. And that includes the sexual differences between man and woman. And in this fractured state, the human person loses his psychosomatic unity. And an inner conflict begins to erupt outwardly. The fig leaves hiding the body and so forth. And so male-female differences are no longer recognized as a gift, but now there's something to be hidden, there's something to be ashamed of, there's something to be opposed. Now there's more than just before the fall and after the fall. There's also after redemption, after Christ. You know, this isn't the end of the story. Genesis 3 is not the end of the story. The final redemptive work corrects the opposition. The redemptive order of Jesus Christ goes back to the beginning and removes the opposition of sin and in so doing restores full personhood. That's what happens in redemption. Remember, when Jesus handles the question of the Pharisees confused about male-female relationships and application to divorce, he refers them back to Genesis. And he says, Mark chapter 10, verse 6, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Which means, according to Jesus, a right view of the sexes begins with two presuppositions. First, God is the creator. And second, that God made people male and female. And so that means the grace of God has power to heal whatever is wounded, whatever is fractured because of the fall. The redemptive order requires us to receive anew the abundance of the gift of male and female, which means, you might be thinking, okay, well, that, that, that'll come in the new heavens and new earth, and certainly it will most fully, but even now in the church, as God's redemption works itself out now, even in the church, before Christ returns again, that healing must take place. In other words, the church must get male-female relationships right. And this is how we can testify to the truth of the gospel to the world when we speak truth that corresponds to the reality God gave and bring into that conversation, of course, how Jesus Christ heals the fracture that is now evident, that is now erupting in the modern world. And so what we'll do in future weeks is we're going to look at the modern world. We're going to look at modern gender theory, its history, uh, its philosophy, its theology, how it came to be, it's very recent, very recent, how it came to be that sex was, biological sex was divorced from gender, and then how we as Christians ought to think faithfully about it. All right, that closes our time together. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll, we'll close out for today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the goodness that we see in your creation, and we thank you for Christ Jesus the Redemptor, who brings us salvation, who brings us healing. And so, Father, uh, as we uh, remember these things and turn now to worship you this morning, we pray that you would uh, incline our hearts to worship you this morning, that you would help us to worship you with joy and gladness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh,